people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Raffin. Well, have you enjoyed the roller coaster ride this week? It's been a heck of a week in, in the market. Caused a lot of people uh, some angst and a lot of uncertainty out there. It gave the pundits a lot of great headlines to write, even though they had uh, very little say in the body. So I thought we'd spend a little time talking today, because we don't do this very often, about the market. What's causing the market to move in these wild swings? And it's a couple of things that, that you've probably already heard and, and a couple of things that you probably have not heard. First of all, people always point to China. The economic slowdown in China is having ripple effects through the uh, world's economy. And uh, that's, you know, that's partially true. Now, We've said many, many, many times that the market does not like uncertainty. Okay, remember me saying that? The economic slowdown in China is not an uncertainty. Okay, we, we've seen this coming for a long time. Nobody's believed their numbers. They came out this week with GDP growth numbers of 6.9%. That's not even close, not even close to being right. You start looking at the peripheral numbers of China, like the amount of electricity they're producing, the amount of iron ore they're using for steel, that kind of stuff, tells a completely different story. One of the other aspects coming out of China is the way the leadership, I don't know what you call the communist leadership in China, handles their currency and stock market. They act like they don't know what they're doing, which leads us to believe uh, they, they don't know what they're doing. They have circuit breakers in place, and when the circuit breakers kick in, and shuts the market down, they don't like that, so they abandon the circuit breakers. They want to be a world currency and let it clear float. But when it starts to clear float and depreciate in value, they immediately prop it up with a bunch of money. It's not so much uncertainty coming out of China as, uh, I guess, amateur night in the arena coming out of China. That's what's caused some of the volatility in the markets. The other, other big thing that people are attributing to is oil. Oil, 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 oil. A few years ago, it was Greece. Pun slightly intended. Every headline was about Greece defaulting on their debt, Greece uh, leaving the European Union, riots in Greece, all this kind of stuff. Well, that, that just went away, didn't it? Well, I can tell you for certain, not much has changed in Greece. So why is it irrelevant now? Well, it's irrelevant now because nothing coming out of Greece is unexpected. When it comes to oil, that's not really unexpected. Oil is being driven down by several things. One, strength of the United States dollar around the world. For almost two years, the dollar has consistently gotten stronger. So how can that be unexpected? It's not. 
but it is driving down the price of oil. Saudi Arabia keeps pumping oil. OPEC nations keep pumping oil, increasing the supply, even though the demand is uh, going down somewhat. So that's what's driving down the price of oil. Everybody ties that price to the stock market, and when oil goes up, stock market goes up with it. Well, that hasn't been consistent in years past. When oil has gone down, the market has gone up. Really, the the only the only sectors, the only uh, companies that are hurt by the price of oil coming down are companies that poke holes in the ground and suck the oil up out of the ground and sell it. The refineries are making more money because their raw material is cheaper. Price of a barrel of oil is cheaper than it was. Oh, by the way, side note, I read somewhere today uh, that the uh, price of oil, a barrel of oil, the oil is cheaper than the cost of the barrel they put it in. Now, that kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So uh, now they don't really put it in barrels. That's just a measurement. But uh, you know what I mean. But the refineries are still making plenty of money. You and I are benefiting by the cost of gasoline being lower. So what is causing the volatility in the market? Central banks uh, are blamed for some of the volatility, but they can't really do anything. All central banks can do is provide liquidity. Liquidity does not move the market because people have to use that liquidity. They have to borrow money, if they will. So what is moving it? Well, here's an interesting theory that maybe you haven't heard. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just speculating. We're just talking here, you and me. But the market doesn't like uncertainty. We've established that. So what's uncertain? What What's happening out there that nobody, eh, very few people, expect? Think about this. It, it revolves around the political. Who would have said a year ago Bernie Sanders would be neck and neck with Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination? Who would have said Donald Trump will be double-digit ahead in the polls on the Republican side for the presidential nomination. Who would have said that? Nobody. Nobody. So let's look at Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I think the market, which looks forward to its pricing, the market is always looking at future pricing. As the market looks toward the future, we got... The possibility, stranger things have happened in this country. Don't think it's probable, but it's possible that Bernie Sanders gets the nomination and becomes president. One thing you can say about Bernie is he's intellectually honest. Don't agree with him, but he's honest about who he is, what he is, and what he would try to do as president. And nothing he says he wants to do is capitalism friendly. It is not business friendly to this country. So the economy, the market has to price in that possibility. Donald Trump, on the other hand, um, wants to be more on the mercantile side, wants protectionist. He wants tariffs against China. He wants 
to build fences around the country, uh, both literally and figuratively from an economic standpoint. Will he raise taxes? He, he says he's going to. Um, will what he wants to do help the the uh, American economy? Hard to say. But once again, the market looking to the future has to price in the possibility of Donald Trump getting the nomination and possibly winning the presidency. Now, things will change as the year goes on. As polls get more accurate, as candidates drop out, the field gets smaller, we get closer to uh, Election Day, we have some primaries, Iowa and New Hampshire's coming up in the next week or so, and uh, Super Tuesday's coming up in March. That'll give us a lot more indication of what's going to happen in the future, and the market, the stock market, will start pricing in those possibilities. Market didn't really react to Janet Yellen raising interest rates in December by 25 basis points. And that's because we priced that in already. That was not not uh, unexpected. If she would have raised the rates a half a percent or three quarters of a percent, that would have been unexpected. That would have been a problem. And the market would have reacted to that. If she'd have not raised them at all, the market would have reacted to that also, although not as extreme as raising it more than people were expecting. So I'm just laying it out there, just something for you to think about. I'm not saying that the market is making its wild swings because of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. What I'm indicating is... The market has to price into its future all possibilities based on probabilities. So if it's likely Bernie Sanders is going to be the candidate and it's likely he becomes president, the closer we get to that likelihood, the closer, the greater the probability of that, the more likely the market's going to react and start pricing that in. And it's the same with Hillary Clinton. It's the same with Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Ben Carson or anybody, John Kasich, any of those guys. The market is going to price in the probability of what it thinks is likely to happen and the consequences of that person getting in. So just laying it out there, food for thought, if you will, that it may not be the cause of the market movement may not be where everybody is looking. It may be something else entirely. And I think this is one of those things it could be. Speaking of the price of oil, coming up next, we'll talk about some of the, the good and the bad associated with oil being as cheap as it is relative to where it was a year ago. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
You know, I forgot to mention in our last segment, coming up next in our next segment, Dan Bongino. He was a uh, Secret Service agent under Clinton, Bush II, and the Obama administration. Got a new book out called The Fight, Secret Service Agents Inside Account of Security Failings and the Political Machine. We're going to be talking to him after this segment, so uh, you want to stay with me for that. He's a good guy. Looking forward to our chat. You know, price of oil is down significantly from its peak. The ultimate peak was a while ago. I think 2014, it hit $140 a barrel, something like that. And then it hovered around 90 to 110. Stayed in that range for a long time. And over the last year, it's come all the way down to, well, I've seen it as low as $25, $26 a barrel. Now, you and I, it's not such bad news at the gas pump. Gas all over is under 2 bucks, And in some places, even cheaper than that. There's one place up in northern Michigan by Traverse City, Houghton Lake, where they're having some gas wars up there. And last week, you could have bought gas for 48 cents a gallon. 48 cents. Lived down by Toledo. I was calculating how much gas I would have to buy up there to cover the uh, the drive up and back to make it worthwhile. But uh, I couldn't carry that much gasoline, so it didn't go. But anyway, uh, the good news is that the residual products around oil... Are becoming cheaper, so gasoline is cheaper. All the distillates, diesel fuel, uh, is way down. All of that helps the economy because consumers will redirect those dollars into two other areas: one, additional consumption, which helps the economy, and two, savings. And statistically, people uh, uh, lately have been saving about forty, fifty percent of the money they save at the gas pump into savings. So to me, anything that encourages people to save is a good thing. Now, people getting hurt by this uh, certainly are uh, the drillers, certainly are the companies that supply the drillers with stuff, certainly the men and women employed by drillers, Okay, frackers. Uh, frackers have been hit particularly hard with the drop in oil because it's it's fairly expensive to frack for oil, and oil has to be over. Eh, I've heard several different things, but between forty-five and fifty-five uh, dollars a barrel uh, before frackers are profitable. So what's happened in the last year is 50% of the rigs out there that was pumping oil from fracking a year ago, 50% of them are not in operation. In other words, we've cut our fracking rigs, if you will, by 50%. Now, what's happened to the amount of oil and gas that has been brought up using half the rigs? It would make sense that it's half the amount of oil in gas. Not true. What this has done is caused the frackers to become much more efficient. So even though the number of rigs have been cut in half, the amount of oil coming up has stayed the same. So frackers, the survivors, are getting lean and mean. This is a classic historic example in capitalism of market becoming more efficient. The negativeness, the, the cleaning house, the, the 
putting out of business a lot of these frackers due to the price of oil indicates that they probably shouldn't have been in business in the first place. The the debt attached to the frackers, if they had no debt, price of oil wouldn't matter nearly as much. But the fact is they have a lot of debt to service. So when the price of oil comes down, cash flow comes down, cash flow comes down, it's harder to service their debt. If you don't have any debt, it's easier to survive some downward swings in the price of your product. But this is going to help the fracking industry. The The beauty is with oil and gas and that kind of stuff, once it's found in the ground, it doesn't depreciate by leaving it there. So the fact is we know the oil is there. We know where it's at. We know how to get it. We, we've been down there. And we're just not pulling it up. So it's it it's just kind of in storage until we decide to pull it up or we can sell it at a profit. Now, there's going to be quite a shakeout in the small oils company, fracking, uh, wildcatter type business. But ultimately, that's going to be a good thing because it's making the market a lot more efficient. And efficiency will add a lot to the bottom line in profits once the price reaches equilibrium again. And it will. Trust me, it will. Nobody can operate profitably at $25 a barrel oil. Nobody. The funny part of oil being down from a negative standpoint is ISIS. ISIS, you remember that organization? They ordered a 50% pay cut for their fighters. 50%. Now, it's been said that about 50% of the world's oil is sold illegally. Well, we know ISIS is financing their whole state, whatever you want to call it, by stealing oil and selling it on the black market. We've seen that. It's been proved through Turkey and all that kind of stuff. But with the price of oil coming down, they got a big organization to, to finance, and they don't have the cash. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. Coming up next, my conversation with Dan Bongino, a former Secret Service agent. Got a new book out called The Fight. Looking forward to talking to him next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dan Bongino. He served in the Secret Service during Clinton, Bush, and the Obama administrations. Ran for the Senate in 2011 and Congress in 2014 in Maryland, highly Democratic district. Uh, fell short by just one percentage point. You see him everywhere. He's on Hannity, Mark Levin, CNN, Fox, uh, MSNBC. Uh, I saw him on O'Reilly a couple weeks ago. Author of the new book, The Fight. A Secret Service Agent's Inside Account of Security Failings and the Political Machine. Dan, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time with us. Your uh, publisher sent me uh, an advanced copy of the book, which I always love, and uh, read through it. Very readable, very interesting. I think it was released Monday of this week. And uh, uh, Tuesday on this week, Uh, very, very interesting book, very uh, 
fascinating to get the inside uh, look from the secret uh, secret service uh, aspect of it. Um, you know, and I listen to some of your blogs and and read you on uh, uh, conservative. Uh, what is it? Conservative Review. Yeah, conservativereview.com. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, thank uh, you for doing that. You're you're all over the place, but uh, <laughs> I got so many questions I want to ask. So I'm just going to dive in, and and when yeah. we run out of time, we run out of time. But um, reading through the book. Um, you know, you talk about the IRS scandal and uh, that kind of stuff. I want to touch on uh, the media. Uh, how has the media really helped uh, the country get into the the position we're in now? And can the media help us get out? I mean, it, it seems like the American people have such a distrust to the information we're getting now. Yeah, and they and they should. Uh, one of the chapters in the book is called uh, "Media Bias: Fighting Back," and I, I, that chapter I, I really enjoyed writing. That chapter. What, what I tried to do in the book was to lay out a problem. Media mm-hmm. bias—that's a problem. Tell a story, either from the Secret Service or from uh, being a candidate, having been involved in the process or having been involved in campaigns, that really highlights the problem to a real-world story, and then present a solution. You know, anybody can complain about hey, media bias. All right, what are we going to do? Right, uh, right. The answer is we can fight back, and and one of the proposals I lay out as I tell the story of my congressional campaign in Maryland where we were completely blacked out. There was a newspaper up there, the Herald Mail, uh, which is, it has a pretty prominent distribution in Washington County, which was a district, uh, which was a county in the congressional district I ran. And they just would not cover our campaign. They refused. There was nothing uh, not credible about our campaign. We were out fundraising our opponent. We had a major national profile. Uh, we were doing very well in, in polls. Uh, and they just refused to cover it. So what we did, and what I suggest activists do, is you know, we reached out to people who had some Influence, the Media Research Center, and things like that. And we put together a near indictment of what this uh, this paper had refused to cover. And once it got some national attention, we exposed them. And after that, they, they showed up at every event. They hated <laughs> it. They hated doing it. But the point I was trying to make, and then I make it in a, in a little more detail in the book, is one, you have to fight back. I lay out mm-hmm. some other methods to do it as well. Because if you, you're just going to be stepped on. Don't try to be friends with them if you're a conservative or a libertarian. They're not interested. They really don't care it's a shame you have to shame them into appearing to do their job i mean they're not going to think objectively no matter what i don't think but no they're not you know you're right it is a shame it's it's awful but there's no there's no other way to do they are died in the wool far leftists in the mainstream media and you have to call them on it you don't have a choice one of the things in I pulled out of the book, I, I, I tend to mark up the book, so I, I do read them, and I highlight them, put Post-it notes all over. But one of the things that stuck in my mind, you had a quote in there uh, talking about your campaign, if the message doesn't fit on a Wheaties box, then no one will remember it. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. <laughs> Wheaties box messaging. And, th- you know, this goes for activists, for John Q. Public, for candidates, uh, campaigns from the local office to the federal level. One of the things we get lost in as conservatives and libertarians is, uh, you know, we tend to make academic arguments when the left argues strictly on emotion. In other words, mm-hmm. the left says, ah, oh, you know, you guys want to throw grandma off a cliff. And what do we do? We respond with, well, actuaries at Social Security stated that by 2037 we will be, uh, you know, uh, you get what I'm saying? Like, we yeah. make reasoned arguments because conservatism is reasonable. There's nothing controversial about individual economic liberty or making the case for it. But I, I bring that Wheaties box messaging up because it's not 
you can't do that sometimes in a public forum, whether you're debating or, or you're, you're on a news show or you're even talking to your kids. Sometimes you have to play the emotion game as well. And the way I used to do that was with the confrontational question. And that was my Wheaties box way of stopping just about any leftist argument. You know, they bring up, you know, well, you guys just don't like uh, whatever, uh, you know, m- m- minorities and minority communities. I say, really? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because the left has been in charge of large minority communities in their cities for decades, and they're completely collapsing. Like, well, what did we have to do with that? And then all of a sudden, there's like silence. So that's how you have to do it. You have to fit it on a Wheaties box and yeah. make it work. If it's too long, it ain't going to work. A terrific, terrific visual concept there. We're talking with former Secret Service agent Dan Bongino, author of the new book, The Fight, a Secret Service agent's inside account of security failings and the political machine. Um I, in your writings, in, in listening to your blog, in, in the book, that kind of stuff, uh, let's touch on the Second Amendment and these these executive orders coming out. And, and I know this latest executive order on the surface was kind of innocuous, but a slippery slope is a slippery slope in my mind. And uh, once a little piece of liberty is gone, it's very, very difficult to get it back. Uh, from your side of the equation, I mean, you're on the other side. You're protecting yeah. the president and people from people who – might be bad people with guns. What's your thought on on the right to carry and and that kind of stuff? Well, the left has always attacked the right to self-protection because uh, and there's a reason for this. You know, a lot of conservatives will, having read the Federalist Papers and other documents, they accurately state that, the, you know, the right to, to, to bear arms was a protection against an overbearing, potentially tyrannical government. They're not, mm-hmm. that, there's nothing black helicopter about that. You can read the documents uh, yourself. The founders are very clear on that. But, well, you know, when you read a lot of the documentation, that the pre-Constitution documentation, you start to realize there was another reason, I think, that the, the, the founders were very concerned uh, about the Second Amendment and the right to be to bear arms not being infringed upon. And here's here's why: if you can protect yourself and protect your family and have the capability to do so, there's a certain freedom liberty component there that detaches you from the need, the necessity to be latched on to the you know to, to government, to be to be to be suckling off government all the time. There's a, there, you you don't need it. Now listen, it's nice to have police protection. We enjoy mm-hmm. police protection. It's good to have, but the police are not there to protect you. Make no mistake. They're there to enforce the laws. If they were there to protect you, you could call them right now and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to walk to my neighbor's house. It's a little dark. Can you have a cop escort me? They're going to laugh at you. They're not there for that. They're there to enforce the laws. The left doesn't like that. The left likes a constant attachment to government, economically, health care, through education, and even through public safety. So I believe there's a more nefarious reason by their, behind their constant attacks, and that's it. They want you to your safety to be exclusively under the control of the state, and that's really disturbing. The right to self-protection should be there when you triage your priorities, should be number one. You know, it's funny you say that because this has nothing – uh, you didn't address this in your book or anything, but I made the, the comment about that yesterday as to why the government's putting so much money or saying they're going to put so much money in self-driving cars. And they're doing it to protect us, to keep us safe. But it's one more thing they control in our lives. You know, that's that's a fascinating it, it, that occurred to me in a different form. But, I, you know, maybe I'll do a podcast. On that. That's a great really. That's very that's very intuitive. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I always say with the left of my own show, I say, uh, hey, listen, there's always a scam. You just have to find it. Usually right. it's by following the money or following the stream of control, how they're yeah. actually going to control it. And I don't disagree with you at all that there's probably another motive behind that. And that's probably it. Well, you know, I asked the question to my listeners, why would they do that? Why would the government? 
government want self-driving cars? And, and there's only two answers. One, to funnel money to the cronies. Okay. Yeah. And two, to control. You think a self-driving car is going to go 70 miles an hour in a 55? Uh, that's right. just never going to happen. You know? Yeah, that's a great so, point. Uh, no uh, yeah. But anyway, um, uh, I've only got you for a couple more minutes, so I'm going to throw a few things out there and, yeah. and hit you with a hard question. Um, you talk a little bit about President Obama uh, in the book, actually quite a bit. Uh, a couple of things I pulled out of the book was, uh, you know, you're talking about leaders. Leaders spread the credit for success broadly, and they spread the blame for failures, failures sparingly. And you also make the distinction of the code and the team. And yeah. both of those paragraphs or sentences that I just said, uh, you talk about in reference to President Obama. Elaborate on that a little bit for us. Yeah, when I was campaigning, I noticed I'd be knocking on doors. And even and remember, my district was overwhelmingly Democrat. And there were two things I'd hear all the time, even in the Democratic district, uh, Bo Bergdahl and Benghazi. It would come up mm -hmm. all the time. And remember, this was a Democrat district. There's not some, uh, you know, far right district at all. Right. And I, I said, you know, this was, that was one of the last chapters I added to the book. And I felt the need to discuss it because I don't think people understand really how out of touch the Obama administration is with, you know, John and Jane Q. Public, you know, people, America that work for a living, you know, our military, our cops, our, you know, our architects, our engineers, our construction workers. Uh, excellent, excellent point. I got to, uh, got about a minute we're left with you. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hit you with a loaded question. Now, I've, I've sure. seen your picture and I know you're part of the Secret Service, so please, I mean no insult by this. Sure. <laughs> I don't want you coming after me. But, <laughs> you know, I, I often think, I, I met President um, George W. Bush in person, and of course there's Secret Service everywhere, and, and none of you guys smile very much uh, when you're on duty, and I can understand that. But your, your job is to step in front of the bullet. Uh, did, yeah. did it ever occur to you with a, a wife and family and, and stuff, did, 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 it, did it ever create a conflict that you might have to step in front of a bullet protecting someone you don't really agree with that you don't think is really helping our country? No, no, not at all. I mean, we're, uh, listen, we're, we're, the, we're, you know, this is the greatest country in the history of mankind. The idea mm -hmm. of individual liberty started here and, and defending that. You know, we do our damage in the election booth here, nowhere else. And I was very careful. I mean, this is my second book. And the, the, one, the, the one bad review, I didn't get a lot, but I got a few bad reviews on the first book. And it's the same theme every time. It's like, oh, we thought there was going to be some, like, inside baseball here about, yeah. about in other <laughs> words, what, what President Obama eats for breakfast. No, I don't do that. The Secret yeah. Service, I was proud of what we did. You know, we do our damage in the election booth here, and President Obama is going to leave office exactly as he came in, healthy, uh, wealthy, maybe not wise, but healthy and wealthy, and we're going to keep him alive. I was proud to do it. Never, never occurred to me, you know, to, matter of fact, there were times I felt like I should do an even better job just yeah. to almost prove to the people who knew I was a, you know, was a Republican that I meant it. This was, yeah. this was what I was really about. Well, and, and once again, I meant no insult by the question. It was just one of those oh, things yeah, yeah. that's I on my that. mind. So we've been yeah, talking no, no. with uh, former Secret Service agent Dan Bongino, author of the new book out this week, The Fight, the Fight uh, Secret Service Agents' Inside Account of Security Failings and the Political Machine. Encourage you to get it. We'll have it on the website. Very, very readable. Read it in about three sittings. Uh, terrific terrific insights. Dan, this has been a true honor. Uh, like Thanks. I said, I got about uh, an hour's more worth of questions. I hope we can <laughs> tap you on the shoulder again sometime soon and yeah. talk to you again. Hey, thanks a lot. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dan.
Coming up next, yes, one of my favorite subjects, more news about the EPA and uh, interesting precedent set by the IRS. We'll talk about those next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, we had another uh, presidential veto this week, one of, I think, nine uh, from President Obama since he's been in office. And this one bothers me. Uh, Well, they all bother me. But this one bothers me a little bit more just because it affects me personally. And that is, um, you know, for for the the total amount of time that the EPA has been in existence, the language has been in its its charter and its authority that it, it it regulates what's called navigable waters, navigable, and navigable is a definitive term. You have to be able to navigate the waters, so it has to be enough water, a big enough river, a big enough source for transportation. Well, recently the EPA, through its own a will of its own, changed its authority to simply water, meaning they could come on anybody's property and have regulatory authority over virtually anything on your private property, anything. And Congress uh, tried to uh, uh, eliminate that language, and it ended up on President Obama's desk, and he vetoed it. And of course, the the usual platitudes, the usual discussion, well, everybody wants clean water. And uh, even though water, uh, some of these sources are not navigable, all of it uh, eventually flows into our lakes and rivers and streams and all that kind of stuff. And, And we need to have clean water. Well, what he did is just gave the EPA authority to walk on anybody's property and regulate virtually anything. Now, on my property where I live, way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, the little homestead, I do have a a creek on my property. And the creek starts on my property because I have flowing wells that flow 24-7, 365 days a year. This water just bubbles up out of the ground, and it starts flowing. And and it, it flows into a small creek, which eventually flows into a larger creek and so on and so forth. And uh, I have an orchard on my property, I have a vineyard on my property, and I can just bet some do-gooder EPA clown is going to step on my property one day and start asking me about my orchard, my vineyard, my bees, everything else on my property. And uh, so one of the issues for me going into the next election is which candidate is going to overturn all this stuff. I would like to ask a candidate, and I might. I'm going to go to the Republican National Convention this July. I may ask the candidates, which one of you is willing to sign an executive order on your first day in office that gets rid of or invalidates all of President Obama's executive orders and then relook them all? And uh, we'll see if any candidates have the courage to say they would do that. But taking the word navigable out of the language 
real problem. That is a real problem because any amount of moisture on your property eventually makes its way somewhere else. And if you say, well, I've got no ditches, no pond, no creeks, no nothing on my property, it doesn't affect me. Wrong. If you have water on your property, meaning if it rains or snows on your property and that that rain or snow just melts down into the ground, eventually it's going to go into a tile, which will transport somewhere else, and eventually it ends up in a stream, a river, a lake, somewhere. Everybody will be affected by the word navigable coming out of the EPA's language as to what they can regulate. They will regulate everything. Second interesting thing that happened this week, if you or I did this, we would be strung up by our thumbs. But the IRS, who uh, last March, uh, no, two marches ago, March 2014, received a congressional subpoena to preserve and turn over information on their hard drives. Well, what did the uh, IRS do this week? Well, either on purpose or accidentally, we don't know which, they deleted everything on those hard drives, wiped them clean. We do know there was 24,000 emails that belonged to Lois Lerner, and uh, just that alone. But... Uh, Tons and tons and tons of sensitive data, uh, tax data, uh, all that kind of stuff was uh, wiped from the hard drive on the computers of the former director. And I, I, I guarantee you, no different than the email fiasco around Hillary Clinton, nothing's going to come of this. Nothing's going to come of this. I was reading some stuff on the history of Russia, and at a time of even worse turmoil than they're in, the phrase among the the peasants was always, yeah, well, what is to be done? What is to be done? The IRS has no respect for the rule of law, and Congress has no will to enforce that law. So they can get away with this. Doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Congress will jump up and down, spit nails, I'm sure, but nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to make any difference whatsoever. You and I do that, <clears throat> we're in jail for the rest of our lives, I guarantee it. But uh, I'm going to keep the article, and if the IRS ever audits me, uh, I'll bring it up. And uh, if they can get away with it, I should be able to get away with it, don't you think? Makes sense to me makes sense to me i'll probably still end up in jail but at least for a little bit i'll have a smile on my face i want you to have a great day be an individual be self-reliant be an economy of one i'm gary rathman we'll see you next time this is our country the views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 